You're listening to episode 30 of the Money Owners Podcast with me, Morgan Rochard. Money Owners is a podcast for people who want to be mentally and financially crushing it. This podcast does not provide investment advice, and nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued to be investment advice. If you'd like more information about Money Owners coaching, the podcast, the homework, and everything I have to offer, visit moneyowners.com. What is happening, my fellow money owners? I wanted to start today with like, hey, y'all, because we're moving <laughs> we're moving to Texas in a month now, and it feels like, it just feels insane, to be honest. I can't even believe that that's happening. Um, so yeah, family is going from New York to Texas in basically a month, and Stuff is starting to get packed, and I'm starting to feel a little nervous because I've never lived anywhere else besides New York. Um, so, yeah, that's on my mind. But today is a Q&A day, and before we start with Q&A, I just wanted to apologize for getting the last two episodes out late. Um, the one before the last one was out late because I was sick and I had to re-record that, and that kind of stunk. And then, actually, the last time... Um, I was actually blown away. My editor like of this podcast really made that seamless, but we had a lot of technical difficulties on episode 29, um, all of them probably my fault. And <laughs> and my editor like totally just fixed that up so well that I didn't even really need to mention it on there. But the reason why it took longer to get out was because of that. So um, my apologies there. They will come out on Friday or Saturday going forward every other week. Um, and with that, oh yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention is that we're going to start doing Q&A every 10 episodes instead of every five episodes, um, mostly because I've, um, I've had trouble getting questions from y'all. So if you do start submitting questions more often, that would be great. And I will run them every five, but otherwise we're going to run them every 10. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. Okay. So first question, um, and this one I get quite a lot. And this one I got from one of our listeners. And the question is, should I refinance my mortgage? And I think y'all know what I'm going to (laughs) say about this, but it depends. Yeah, I know. It always depends and you always need to start with your goals. So I actually, um, before I go into it depends for pretty much every single one of the questions that I got, I want to go into that a little bit further So because we haven't really talked about that in a while because we've been doing the business owner series and we had a guest on about student loans in 29. um, And the business owner series will finish up in the next episode in 31. So... What we haven't talked about in a while are all the things going on in your brain, really, I think. And um, the number one reason why I'm always answering it depends to questions and why it always does start with your goals is because there's just, there are so many differences between what people want to do with their finances that it's almost impossible to answer these questions without knowing a lot more information about you. So I highly recommend when you're submitting these questions, if you want to give me more background information, um, I'll be able to give you a more tailored answer. Um, But without having more information, it's pretty hard for me to tell you what to do. That said, though, there are ways to be thinking about these things. And that's a lot of what this podcast is about. So it's not necessarily that you need to get specific advice out of any single question. It's that you want to get kind of the general idea and then you can apply it to your specific situation. And the way you apply it to your specific situation is by really defining what you want out of this life. So what would really make your life the best possible life? And I know that that sounds really vague, but when you ask yourself that question, you don't just, don't just answer it. Like, yes, answer it, but then ask yourself anything else and wait and see what pops up for you and then do it again and keep doing it until you are out of ideas. Um, because every single one of us, we have all these small little packages that we've hidden away 
deep down inside somewhere. We've hidden them because they're very precious to us. We don't want anyone maybe to know about them. We don't even really acknowledge them anymore half of the time. But when we really think about what we want from life and took a minute, take a minute and listen to ourselves, it's it's pretty easy just to see where you have to go. The problem is that we'd never take the time to do that. So I know this is kind of taking this question of should I refinance my mortgage off the rails here, but the reason why it depends, right, is like, what are you trying to do with the refinancing? So I'll go down the line. I mean, usually people ask me about this because of rates. So I I imagine that this question came up because um, the Federal Reserve has lowered rates. And with lowering of interest rates, it always pops up as the rate refinance. This is typically what people think of when they're doing a refinance, especially with rates at all-time lows. Um, And the first thing you really need to be thinking about when you're doing a rate refinance is comparing the cost of doing a new loan origination with the new rate to see if it makes sense. So generally, new new loan originations with all of the fees, the closing costs associated with doing it, generally cost 1% to 3% to do a refinance on the balance of your loan. So I'll give you an example. Let's say your current mortgage has 25 years left and a balance of $500,000 and a rate of 3.75%, which is still a very good rate. And your current payment on this, let's say, is $25.70 per month. You can refinance to three and a quarter at the current rates. Um, and keep your term the same. So term meaning that you have 25 years left on the same note. So the new payment then would be 2437 versus 2570. So you'd be saving about $133 per month or almost $1,600 per year. But let's say refinancing costs are about 2% of the loan, which would be $10,000 on $500,000 balance. So when you're thinking about that, right, it'll actually take you 6.25 years to break even on the refinancing. So if you don't stay in the home longer than six and a quarter years, it's not worth doing the refinancing. So that's why I'm like, I kind of went off the rails at the beginning of this question about what what do you want to do, right? And it depends. And the answer is, right, if you bought a house and you're planning on dying in that house and you're, you know, not 95 right now and going to die next year... <laughs> <laughs> then you know maybe it makes sense to refinance, right? And and like because you're going to be in that house for longer than six point two five years or whatever the math is on your specific loan, right? So in that case, it would make some sense. But if you're, let's say, you, I don't know, you have um like you're married and you have one kid and you're living in what you consider to be a starter house because there's there you know you maybe you want three or four kids and there's probably not going to be enough space for all of you in that house unless everyone starts doubling up and you know the stuff starts to pile up after a while. Maybe you just want more space. And maybe more space, even without the kids, was something that you've just always wanted and dreamed, and that's part of your best life, right? Who am I to tell you what is or isn't part of your best life? You know better than me. So if that's the case, and you're not planning on staying in the house for that long, then maybe it doesn't make any sense to refinance because you have all these extra upfront costs that you wouldn't otherwise have if you just stay with your current loan. So all things to be thinking about when you're doing a a rate refinance. There are other ways to refinance, though. So that's <laughs> one of the other reasons why this question is like, there's so many answers to it. Um, there's something called a cash out refinancing. So basically, you replace your current mortgage with a new one with a higher balance, and you take out the cash for something else. So it really depends <laughs> when you're doing one of these things. But typically, when somebody's doing a cash out refinancing, it's because they um, are basically using their home as a forced savings plan. You're probably overspending or, or undersaving or a combination of the both of those. Um, and it is, I honestly think, before you do the cash out refinancing, it doesn't mean that you don't do cash out refinancing, but it, but you should like 
overhaul all of your expenses and reevaluate where you stand before you do it. Because the last thing you want to do is do a cash out refinance. You extend the term of your loan, and then you end up basically in the same situation that you are today. In 10 years from now, and you're doing a cash out again, and you're basically like, you're constantly financing your house for no reason, basically. So if that's the case, then like you maybe should downsize your lifestyle um, so that you're building wealth over time, that you're not just like, you know, putting some money into your home, taking it out, putting money into your home, taking it out, extending your loan over and over and over again, you know, having costs associated with that as a result of doing it. Um, that's, it's usually not a good set, good thing to be doing. That said, it doesn't mean it's not a good option, right? Like if you have credit card debt, generally like doing a cash out refinancing is going to cost you much less in interest and even loan origination costs than let's say your credit card interest rates. So most credit card interest rates are 20% to 30%, right? So right away, I mean, even if you had a 5% mortgage rate, you're going to be doing much better, um, even with the origination costs. So, but again, right, if that's your situation, that means that you have some sort of spending issue that's going on that you, you're taking on credit card debt to begin with. So don't get yourself back into the same situation that you're, you are in now just by doing the cash out refinancing. It's not a problem solver. It's really just kicking the can down the road. But it also is goal dependent too. So for instance, I had a client who they really like when we talked about what they really wanted, what their best life was all about. One of the things that they mentioned was that they wanted to own a place um, in, in the countryside and they wanted to use that place as just a small cottage, basically, um, in the countryside as their retirement. Um, and that they wouldn't live in the city anymore. And that, you know, when they commuted in or whatever, they'd take a hotel or, you know, they'd rent an Airbnb or something like that. Um, and that that's how they wanted to handle it and they'd be able to retire early. So what we figured out was if we did a cash out refinancing, um, that they can actually pay for that cottage outright. Um, and because of where rates were, they were actually able to get a lower payment on their current home as well. Um, so all around it worked out. So that's why I'm, I'm also saying like, it doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't do a cash out refinancing and that, um, the only reason why people do a cash out refinancing is because they have some sort of spending problem. It's not always the case, but you need to evaluate these things before you do it. And you need to take into account all of the costs before you do something like that, that to make sure that that decision is absolutely right for you. Um, and I don't, suggest doing a cash out refinancing to go then take on a bunch of other debt and all sorts of other things. So like in this specific case, the numbers just worked and we made it work and that was great. Um, that's not always the case. So you definitely need to evaluate that. And if you're not sure what's going on, then, you know, talk to a planner. They're going to help you. That's what they're for. Um, there are other ways of refinancing, right? So there's term refinancing. It's not something that people talk about typically in, um, in this interest rate environment. But typically what I do see actually is the rate refinance plus the term refinance in this current interest rate environment. So what that means is that you have 20 years left on your mortgage, but you refinance to 30 years um, to lower your payment again. Um, and that's fine. Um, and also if you're doing it with a rate refinance where you go from a higher rate to a lower rate, that also like significantly lowers your payments and extends out. But it also extends out the life of the loan. So you need to basically assess whether or not that actually makes sense for you because typically you are paying more in interest over time when you extend out the loan than if you just do a rate refinance where you have the same term on it. it's That actually saves you money in interest, whereas term refinance typically doesn't. So if you're doing that to lower your mortgage payment, then it's either one of two things, right? It's either you have other goals in mind that actually make sense for you to do that, or you have a spending problem, right? And you're lowering your payment to kind of, you know, subsidize all the other aspects of your lifestyle. So if 
if that's the case, it doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't do it, but you should reevaluate where you stand because you like, you don't want to like be, you know, continually kicking the can down the road and not knowing where you're going to end up. So that's my advice there. Um, there are other refinancing options that we can talk about here. So there's the, um, adjustable rate mortgage to a fixed mortgage. Um, generally arms are more risky than fixed rates because like they come with like these low introductory rate periods and they make it a cheaper option from a cost perspective. Um, but right. You don't know what your interest rate is going to be in, let's say three, five, seven, or 10 years whenever the arm resets. Um, so in 2008, some people had some issues with these. Um, now, I mean, it's hard to know, honestly. I mean, interest rates could like be low forever. Um, I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, that said, though, like sometimes they do make sense because um, so like in the situation we were talking about before with the rate refinancing, right? Like maybe you don't want to live in your home longer than six years. Maybe a, a like seven-year adjustable rate mortgage makes sense because you're going to move before seven years anyways. So, it, you know, the, the rate's never going to reset because you're moving anyways. Um, when I think about that kind of stuff, um, I think you also need to take into account whether or not rent versus buy makes sense for you if you're not planning on being in the home for a long time because there are a lot of costs associated with real estate transactions. They are typically illiquid compared to, you know, just renting and then having all of your equity be in some sort of more liquid investment. So um, I would think about it from that perspective before you take on an arm. If you're really like, hey, I'm only going to be in this house for, you know, five, six years or whatever, and then we're going to go buy a new one. Um maybe save your money. I don't know. I, I would, I would evaluate that before I got into something like that, but it, it may also make sense. You know, I don't know. It depends. It depends on your situation. Um, and then the last thing is, um, is an FH, FHA loan to a conventional loan. So the FHA loans, you don't have to, you put down less than 20% of a down payment. So they come with, um, mortgage insurance premiums that you have to pay. And, um, if you are paying mortgage insurance premiums because you didn't put a down payment down, I highly recommend um, trying to refinance um, to get out of that. So um, I, I had this happen with one of my clients where they, um, when they were making a lot of income, but they didn't have at the like at the time that they were able to buy the house, they had a lot of income, but they didn't really have the down payment. Um, and so what they did was they took they took on the house that they wanted to they wanted to live in for a long time, um, and they had to take on mortgage insurance as a result because they had to get one of these FHA loans. Um, but what they did afterwards was um, the home appreciated in value a little bit, and then they saved a bunch of money um, with their new higher incomes, and then they were able to refinance with the equity in their home plus some of the cash that they had saved to then get rid of the mortgage insurance premiums. So um, if that's your situation, I definitely recommend doing something like that because um, you will save a lot of money. <laughs> um, even if the rate's the same, right? You're no longer paying mortgage insurance, which saves you a ton of money. So um, I would suggest doing that if you can. Okay. So without more information, I hope that that answers your question. And if not, then you know, give me more information on your situation and we can make something happen. Alrighty. Next question. So this is a great one. I love this one. Um, the listener asked, how do I know who to name as an executor, um, beneficiaries or guardians on my estate plan? Family is not a good option for me and I want to make the right choice for my loved ones. I am married with young kids and my young kids can't be, um, they're minors, so they can't actually be on, you know, as, as an executor or anything on the estate. Okay. 
Um, this is actually a really great question and something that comes up in my practice quite a bit um, and is really, really difficult. So typically, we'll just go through what people typically do. Typically what happens is that um, you are in a family where you have a sibling um, or somebody that you happen to love in your family, a cousin maybe, <laughs> um, who you not only love, but you also trust with all sorts of decisions. Like, you know, that if something did happen to you, that they would be able to make good healthcare decisions on your behalf, um, that they would uh, care for your children, um, and that they would also be able to act as power of attorney if, let's say, you got hit by a car and you were incapacitated, or if you were hit by a car and you died, that they would actually be able to become executor on your, of your estate. Um, and I typically see this over and over again where people, they, they tend to name the same person for all of these things. It starts to get more complicated, right, when you don't trust your family member to do even one of them, let alone any of them. <laughs> so um, the beneficiary issue, let's tackle that first because that one's the easy one. So um, if you have minor children and you want you need to you want to name them as beneficiaries on your accounts, um, then what you can do is you can set them up a testamentary trust that would be created in your will. Um, and when the will is read, essentially everything would get allocated to your children um, into that trust. Um, you have to name a trustee for that trust. So that gets a little bit more complicated, but that's typically how it is done. If you don't actually want your kids to be a beneficiary of any of your assets or your life insurance or whatever it is that you have, um, then, you know, you can, if you don't like anyone in your family and you don't want to name any friends, there's always charity as an option um, that you can actually name different charities. I highly recommend that even if you don't know what charity you want to name, that you put something there, you can always change it later, but it's better to have something on file than to have nothing on file. Um, but if, if you do have children, um, and you're basically going to disinherit them, <laughs> you might want to think about how you, how you do it before you, before you do something like that. Like maybe there's somebody else you trust who couldn't take care of your money on behalf of your children, at least when they're minors, that way things get paid for, maybe school gets paid for, for them that they at least have, you know, money for clothing and food and medical and everything else. So that's typically why, um, families will name, will have a testamentary trust for the benefits of their minor children. Um, so that's the beneficiary issue. Um, as far as executor, it's actually a really, it's a hard decision, right? This person basically is, is going to be dealing with your affairs for, you know, generally one to three. I've even seen them be long as six months after you've, um, after you've passed away. If you have like businesses and illiquid assets, I mean, these things can go on and on. Um, I had a client recently tell me that like that the executors of of um of her parents' estate, like they were doing it for a few years. So um it could be a really hard job and you have to be really conscious about who you pick. And if you're not picking a family member, I mean you should even ask your family members to be the executor if, if that's how you're gonna do it. Um but definitely if you're not going to ask a family member, you have to like talk to a trusted friend. You can't just name them in the will and hope that they show up at the reading. Um so that's something to think about for sure. As far as executors, I mean, they need to be organized. Um, they need to be willing also. And so they probably have to have some sort of relationship with you and want to do it for you. Um, I've seen it where uh, lawyers get named. If you really have nobody else, um, that is an option. But you have to obviously like have that arrangement with the lawyer to do it that way. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, just definitely things to be thinking about when if you don't want to name family. Um, if you're married, you, it sounds like you're married, you have young kids, so you probably trust your spouse, I would imagine, at least, to do all of these things first. 
um, to be the executor, to be the guardian of your child of your children, because <laughs> they're your both of your children, um, to also maybe be power active power of attorney on your behalf if something happened to you and not to your spouse. Um, it's usually the secondary beneficiary. I'm sorry, the secondary person who gets named the contingent executor, the contingent beneficiaries, the contingent guardians, all the person people that you have to pick second. That's always the problem. Um, because like, hopefully you trust your spouse enough to do all this stuff. Um, but I've seen it done where let's say, okay, you pick somebody who's a guardian because you know, like they love your kids and they're going to really do a good job raising their kid, your kids, but they don't know anything, let's say about money and you don't want them to have access to your assets. So what I've seen happen is that a different trustee gets named for a, um, testamentary trust that was created for your children. And then the guardian then has to talk to that different trustee about getting access to the money. Um, and typically the so the um, the trustee has spoken with you about prior to your demise about how you would want to have that stuff handled. You can also really put any stipulations you want into your will about about the trust. I would I would not make it difficult for the trustee to distribute money. Um, I think like especially right like sometimes the reason why um, kids get so much money in these testamentary trusts is because like parents maybe parents of young kids don't have a lot of assets or whatever but they got life insurance because of that and then what happens is like both parents are in a car accident they die and then a bunch of money gets dumped into a testamentary trust for the benefit of like one kid let's say um, and then yeah, I mean, you, you, maybe you want to have some stringent rules, but at the same time, you also want to make sure that the trustee is able to like pay for all the things that they need to pay for for that kid um, and not make it so complicated. So um, yeah, so that's one thing. Um, guardians, um, guardians, I mean, you just need to find somebody who's going to love your kids, right? That's really what it is in a nutshell. Um, someone who loves your children, who will treat them like they're their own. That's how you pick a guardian. Um, as far as contingent guardians, I mean, I would say like, it's probably okay. I, you know, I would name some, name somebody in your peer group, um, for the primary guardian, but, um, for, as a contingent for sure, like your, your parents, if you're still, you know, in touch with them, that's another option. Um, we typically don't like to go up a generation. You always like to go down. Um, but you know, you can always update your will if you don't have anybody else, if that's not an option for you either. Um, I mean, you really need to start evaluating who your friends are. <laughs> and maybe even make a close friend who who can be the guardian of your children. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely does get hard when family is not a good option. So I hope that that gives you some insight. I would say, though, like as far as healthcare proxy, um, which wasn't mentioned in this question, but healthcare proxy, if you, if you have anyone who's in the medical field in your family or, um, or a close friend, then that would be a good person to pick because they are going to be making medical decisions on your behalf if you become incapacitated. Power of attorney, it's the same thing, but just not medically related. I mean, people who are who are good with money. And I don't mean like hedge fund managers. I mean like people who actually know things about personal finance, right? There's the human element to this that we want to be considering. Um, so like it's, it's a very big deal to, and it's a huge responsibility on somebody too. So um family or not, you definitely should ask somebody before you name them in any of these documents. Um, okay. I hope that helps. All right. Next question. I was told by my accountant around tax season last year, there was not a whole lot he could do for me after the year had ended to save on taxes. So what do I need to be thinking about now regarding taxes before year end? 
Um, I love this question. And I actually just put out a piece on this um, in my financial planning practice. So I'm just going to go down the list um, and add a little bit of color like I usually do. So the first thing is, if you can defer any remaining income that's going to come in. So typically for this is only really applies for business owners, right? If you're a W2, like you're just going to get paid on your normal schedule. (laughs) Um, If you have a side gig, maybe like, you know, defer any income that you're going to get from your side gig to 2020, if possible. Um, Business owners, same thing. Like, you have some bills that you would typically send out in, um, in December, maybe wait until January, it's not going to kill you. Um, if that's not possible because you have cash flow issues, then that's fine. Then, you know, take the income now, but just know you're going to pay taxes on it. Um, and it doesn't mean that you won't be paying taxes on any remaining income that you have, right? You're just kicking the can down the road to doing it um, for your 2020 return rather than your 2019 return. Um, and vice versa with expenses, right? So prepay business expenses if possible and take the deductions now. So um, people who you can pay... <laughs> So anyone you could pay, start paying them, right? Um, if you have, you know, uh, rent that typically would get charged on January first, pay it on December thirty first. Um, that's that's always the example they give. Or an insurance policy. Um, sometimes insurance policies get billed in January. If you can pay it in December instead of January, you take the deduction this year. It'll offset some income you were going to pay it anyways in January. So what's the difference between paying it now or paying it, in th- you know, in two weeks from now, whatever? Um, so things like that. Um, obviously, like you know, you're, you're not going to be able to prepay the whole year. <laughs> and you probably don't want to do that, right? Because in 2020, you're going to have other income that you're going to want to offset. But these are just some things to be thinking about. Um, also, same thing with bonuses. Um, I know typically a lot of businesses actually do them in January. But I know a lot of my small business owners, they like to give their bonuses out in December. Um, a, because it's nice um, for employees because they can go and actually buy gifts and things with the extra money for their family and friends and everybody else. But also B, because you get to take the deduction this year. Um, rather than next year. So um, good on all fronts. Okay, next one. If you're taking your initial required minimum distribution on your retirement account, delay as long as possible. Um, I would talk to a planner about this one, but basically here's the rule of thumb. You must take your first RMD by April 1st of the calendar year after you turn 70 and a half. So for folks born in the first half of the year, you turn 70 and a half. In the second half of the year, you need to take your RMD by April 1st of the following year. I know that's like a total mouthful. <laughs> and so for folks born in the second half of the year that you turn 75 and a half, um, you turn 75 and a half in the first year of the first half of the following year. And then you have until April 1st of the year after that to take RMDs. So here's the example, because I know that that was definitely a mouthful. Um, you're born on June 30th of 1950. You're going to turn 70 and a half on December 30th of 2020. So you must take your first RMD by April 1st of 2021. Okay. You're born on July 1st though, one day later of 1950. You turn 70 and a half though on January 1st of 2021. And then you get until April 1st of 2022 to take your first RMD. So just a tidbit for parents, if you're timing having a child, the most delaying of RMDs is if your kid is born on or around July 1st, but not before July 1st. So if you're going to time it so they could take their RMD as late as possible, that is my suggestion. That said, there are some articles and other things that have come out um, about why you don't necessarily want to take all of your um, retirement contributions last. And it really depends on your financial situation. So I highly recommend if you're in the distribution phase of your life 
um, and you're looking at retirement distributions, um, you're over, older than 59 and a half, and you're starting to think about some of these things, talk to a planner because depending on what your situation looks like, it might actually make sense from a tax perspective to empty out those accounts first rather than last, in which case delaying your RMDs as long as possible isn't really going to help you. <laughs> All right. If you had lower income um, in 2019, it's actually probably a good time for you to do a Roth conversion. So um, they have some calculators online with this. We can uh, post a link in the show notes for you to take a look. But um, basically, a Roth conversion is you have money in a traditional IRA or let's say you rolled over a 401k um, from a previous employer into a rollover IRA. You had pre-tax dollars that went into a retirement account. You took a deduction at the time. Um, off your taxes. And um, and then later on, which goes back to the RMD thing that we were just talking about, you're going to pay taxes on that money um, as early as, you know, age 71, basically. So the idea about a Roth conversion is if you're in a situation where you made much less income in one year and your tax rate is just, you know, abnormally low for you, then I would say it's a good year to do it because, you know, given what your savings rate is and everything else, then you're probably still going to be paying a relatively high tax rate on the other side if you were a high income earner going in, depending on what your spending looks like then having a low-income year is probably a good year to do a Roth conversion. Um, there are calculators online, but also I do recommend talking to a planner or an accountant about this um, because they, in the new tax law, they change the rules and they, they can't be undone. So they have to be done before the end of the year and they can't be undone. So if you are... If you make a mistake, there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> you got to pay your taxes. So um, all the more reason to talk to an accountant or a planner about it when you're going to do it. All right. So give gifts. Um, if you have a lot of money and you want to get some out of your estate, then you can give to up to $15,000 per person per year, every year tax-free. So um, this is typically for people who are very wealthy, um, who are trying to get money out of their estate. Uh, one of the tactics of doing it is to give gifts. Um, the gift limit got increased from 14,000 to 15,000. I forget which year they did that. Um, and it's a great opportunity to do that. Um, other things to keep in mind, if you're somebody who has a lot in your estate that you want to get out of, um, you can directly pay for things on behalf of your family members. So, um, the typical example that's used is grandparents paying for college directly. If you actually give the money to your child to go pay for their child's, you know, schooling directly, then it could be considered a taxable gift depending on how much you gave them. If you gave them $15,000 or less, um, then it's not going to be a taxable gift. But if you gave them more than that to pay for school, I mean, schools are astronomical these days. So <laughs> you probably did give them more than that, in which case, um, I would say don't do it that way. Pay the school directly. That's another good way to get money out of your estate. All right. Other things to think about. So a uh, contribution to a 529 plan if you live in a state with state tax. Um, all of the states have different rules. Some states have no state tax, and it doesn't even make any sense probably to put into a 529. Um, some states have very high state tax, and it does make sense. And um, all of the states are different. I don't know. I really know only know what's going on in like New York and Illinois. <laughs> And actually, um, North Carolina, because that's where I tend to have clients. So um, barring those states, I really can't give you a whole lot of advice about this. So I'm going to I'm gonna leave it to you to Google. Um, but basically, you got to do it before the year ends. So you got to make also like make sure that it aligns with your goals and where you think education is going and what you actually want for your child. So like, don't just put a bunch of money into a 529 because you want a tax deduction, right? Because if you don't actually use that money for education, there's penalties for taking it out. Um, so it's not like a great place to park money if you're not actually going to use it 
on, you know, college or grad school for your kids. Um, the other thing is that the new tax law allows um, some, so basically the new tax law that was passed, um, they said that you can use the funds in a 529 for private school, but not all of the states actually gave the AOK on that. So it's another thing to check. You're, you might be living in a state that doesn't um, that won't allow you to use 529 contributions for private school. Um, in which case, like, don't be parking a bunch of money away just because you read something that the federal government said it was okay because the states also had to okay it. And if they didn't, then you're basically putting money in that account for no reason. So um, another reason maybe to talk to a planner, but <laughs> I know it's like a episode, just like a plug for planners. Um, and if you do want to talk to a planner, you don't have to talk to me. Um, if you don't like me, I don't know, that's fine. Go to xyplanningnetwork.com and go find a planner. Um, I think that that would be great. I'd love you to find a person that you want to work with. All right. Fully fund your retirement plan if possible and not compromising your other goals. So what does that mean? This year, the maximum limit on 401ks and 403bs is $19,000. There are other plans that have other lower limits like the simple IRA. I think that they're up to 13,000 off the top of my head. Um, I hope you don't have a simple IRA. Those are really annoying. Uh, <laughs> um, there's also catch-up contributions. So if you're over the age of 50, you can put another $6,000 in um, for the 401k or the 403b. Um, this is a really great way, especially if you're a W-2 employee, to lower your adjusted gross income um, and lower your tax rate. So I would say if it's not compromising other goals, then I would do it. If it is compromising other goals, um, which we've talked about on this podcast, right? Like I've seen it where people put a bunch of money in their retirement accounts um, and then they don't they literally don't have any money besides maybe like a tiny emergency fund or they're living paycheck to paycheck, but they've got like a million dollars in assets in their retirement account. Um, don't be that way, right? It's not all about the tax deduction at the end of the day. Like sometimes it's worth it to pay some taxes and to have some money outside retirement accounts. So you can, I don't know, go buy a house or, you know, pay for your kid's bar mitzvah or, you know, pay for your wedding. I don't know. I don't know what your goals are, right? You know what your goals are. Um, and don't compromise them to take a tax deduction. But at the same time, if you are in a position to be doing that, then it's a good idea to fully fund your retirement account. Use your FSA contributions. Um, this goes also for the dependent care FSA. So there's like the health care flexible spending account and also your dependent care one. Um, I had this happen to a client, like they're like the best and they are always on top of everything. And, um, like they just didn't realize that they didn't use the dependent care to pay for the, their kids' daycare. Um, and then they like basically lost that money. So um, that's use it or lose it. And you need to know like whether or not your plan is in a calendar year or in an off cycle year. Um, sometimes if you're doing open enrollment in an odd time of the year, then it's not going to be that you have to use it by December 31st. So just like be up on the rules of what's going on with your FSA accounts, but definitely use them if you have them, if you put money in there. If you're finding that you have money in there and you keep losing it, then you're putting too much in these accounts. Um, there's no point of putting it in the account if you're not going to use it. So typically what people do is like they'll put maybe their deductible um, in an FSA account. Um, and generally people who have kids that need some sort of childcare are just maxing out the FSA for dependent care because they're going to use it all um, because it always costs more than $5,000. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but with the with the healthcare FSA, it starts to get a little bit more complicated. So um, if you're doing it, like if you tend to use out of pot, like out of network related doctors, like it might be an, a good idea to put some money into an FSA. That way, you're at least using pre tax dollars for that stuff. But otherwise, it's kind of hard to know, right? If you're not really a person who gets sick all that often, maybe it doesn't make any sense for you to put any money into there and and even just use after tax dollars if something does come up. So um, super 
dependent situation, <laughs> but you know, just like kind of keep an eye on it and don't, you know, randomly put money in these accounts just because you want a tax deduction if you're not actually going to use them. On the same note, though, if your plan, if you do have a plan that offers an HSA contribution, that's completely different. And I would say max that out because um, an HSA can basically be used as a retirement account. Um, and depending on, on, you know, how your plan is structured, I mean, basically you can put money into that and never use it. You can just use after tax dollars to pay for medical expenses if that actually makes sense for your plan. And then, um, when you're in retirement, that money is triple tax free, um, and you can use it for anything, not just healthcare. So, um, something to think about if you do have um, access to an HSA account. If you don't, don't worry about it. Um, they have a lot of rules about what, who can and can't have access to an HSA. They have to be a high deductible plan. So if you're in a high deductible plan, typically if you have any kind of medical expenses come up, you're usually dipping into that account. Um, so they don't always really make it to retirement. But um, if you are good about um, staying healthy and uh, maximizing your HSA contributions, it is another way to have assets in retirement. All right. Another thing you can do is tax loss harvest your investments. So um, what this means is you sell something that you have a loss on and you buy something else that's pretty close to what you currently own um, to take the loss but stay invested. So typically what we do in my practice is like we'll hold the global fund, um, we'll sell the global fund, and then we'll buy the components, um, meaning like we'll buy a U.S. and then we'll buy an international and emerging markets fund. And then if those are doing bad, we go back the other way. So we'll sell whichever one hap- you know happens to be doing badly, and then we, we reconstitute with a global fund and we try to keep the, um, the asset allocation relatively similar overall. Um, so yeah, I would say do that. You can deduct $3,000 per year on your investments. If you do own um, if you do own mutual funds, they typically throw off capital gains at the end of the year. So at the very least, that's a good idea if you have any kind of losses to tax loss harvest so that you can offset those. Um, and yeah, and if you, let's say you have a really bad year, I don't know, our market's down quite a bit and you're able to take like, you know, $50,000 in losses, you can carry that forward. So every year it'll offset some of your mutual fund capital gains, and then you can still take the $3,000 deduction. Um, unfortunately, it's only $3,000. Um, and, but that said, you know, maybe if you have a lot of losses, you can make it, you know, last over a long period of time. The idea is not to take losses and then to feel bad about it. The idea is to take a loss and then immediately buy something else that you also want to hold that's relatively close or equivalent to it that you can hold for a long period of time. So if you're a person who is, let's say, investing in sustainable investments, right, um, a, a comparable equivalent would be another sustainable investment. It wouldn't be going from sustainable to unsustainable because if you did that, that's not something you actually want to hold over a long period of time. Um, and you have 30 days, basically, you have to wait 30 days before you can swap it back out. Um, and over the course of 30 days, like, I mean, I've seen it happen where a market goes down, market bounces back up, and you can't get back into what you did before. So, um, and there are tax consequences to selling something to buy something else that wasn't necessarily equivalent. So I would say make sure it is equivalent and something you want to hold for a long time if you're going to do something like that. If you don't know what you're doing, contact a planner. Okay. Another thing, take capital gains if you have a lower income year. So same thing as the Roth conversion, right? If um, you happen to have a lot of capital gains and you have a lower income year, you might be in a much lower bracket. You might even pay 0% on your capital gains depending on how much income you made that year. So um, yeah, so something to consider um, and things to be thinking about in a lower income year. This is why at this time of the year, we always do projections um, for all the business owners to see what they're actually making. Um, and anyone who has light year, we generally like go crazy. 
can start doing all sorts of fun stuff because we can. Um, so yeah, something to consider if that's you, maybe don't feel bad about having a lower income year, capitalize on it, you know, turn it around, make it work for you. All right. Um, other things to consider. So, um, maybe your assets have appreciated quite a bit. Um, and you didn't have a lower income year, so you can't take a bunch of capital gains, but you also generally give to charity. So maybe it's a good year to give uh, an appreciated asset to charity instead of cash. Um, the benefit to doing that is you don't take the capital gain and the charity, they don't care what they get. So, um, they don't have to pay taxes on that. So, (laughs) um, yeah, so I would say that's a great way to do it and you can still take your deduction and everything else. Um, another thing to do if you had a really good year is, and you tend to be charitable, maybe it's a year for you to do what's called a donor advised fund. Um, you create the fund, you bunch a bunch of charity contributions into one tax year. So you basically just put a lump sum into this account and then you can use the account over multiple years to give gifts. Um, you only take this tax deduction though in the year that you put money into the donor advised fund. So, um, that is definitely something to consider if you're coming up on the end of the year and you realize, Hey, like I always give to charity and like, you know, we made way more than we normally do and our taxes are going to be way through the roof. So, um, something to consider. That said, if that's not part of your plan um, and, you know, you had a really good year, but you're actually going to use this good year to like park away a bunch of savings because you sometimes have a lot of bad years where you could be taking capital gains and doing all that other stuff. Don't give all your money to charity. Save that money, right? So it's all dependent on what your situation is. And if you have any questions about it, I know I've said it 5,000 times on this podcast, talk to a planner. (laughs) All righty. Last question because we're I I actually, I can't believe how much I've been talking. So um, we're already at 40 minutes and we got another question to go. So let's do it. All right. (laughs) This question is funny. Personal finance stresses me the F out. What do I do? My wife and I really need to sit down and take control of our finances, but we both loathe it. We're not in an ideal situation and really need to make changes, but we can't seem to get the ball rolling. Please help. All right. I want to help you. I really do. And you know what? I know you can do it. So... I think that's something that we always tell ourselves, oh, I hate this. I can't do it. It sucks. It's the worst. I'm never going to be able to do it. And you know what? My wife hates it too. So like, we're just a lost cause. Neither one of us can do it. Should have married somebody else who cared about money. (laughs) Right? Isn't that that what you're kind of saying to yourself? That's what I'm reading when I read this question. I'm like, (laughs) I'm getting these vibes of like, why bother? (laughs) Why bother? Neither one of us is good at this doesn't matter. We might as well just like accumulate a bunch of debt and die. Right. Is that, is that what you guys are thinking? I don't know. That's what I'm thinking. Anyways. Um, you can do it. So it kind of goes back to what we started at the beginning of this uh, podcast with your goals and really figuring it out. So I think what has gone on between for you two is that you haven't had, um, you haven't thought of what you really want out of your life. You haven't really thought about what your best life really looks at looks like. You haven't created a vision for that. Because if you had, you'd have a fire in your belly and you'd get after it. Because that's what I see over and over and over again with my clients. When they have a fire in their belly about it, they do it. And they can't wait to get off the couch, even if they're a person who loved it. And the whole reason why they hired me is because they hate it so much they don't want to do it. So, but that's not something that I can do for you. So like I can, I mean, especially on a podcast, it's really hard for, for me to do this for you. I can do that in the, in an office for sure. Um, I have meetings with my clients and we help them do that. That's part of it. Um, but they do the work, right? It's not me who is getting them off the couch. It's my clients who have made a commitment, who 
come to me who, um, who get a listening ear from me and who then do the work that is expected of them, the inspirational work that will help them live that best life, that dream that they want to have. Um, and no dream is too big, really. Um, I mean, like we can really have anything that we want in this life. We can't have everything, right? We've talked about that quite a bit, but we can have anything. And even if we can't have that thing that we really want, um, like for instance, I had a, I had a client one time tell me like, you know, well, it's totally never possible for us based on my income, but you know, I really would love to own a baseball team. Um, and the answer to that isn't, okay, let's try to make that happen because you know, it's, it really isn't going to happen for him, but that doesn't mean that we can't generate that feeling for him in some other way. That doesn't mean that we can't, you know, get him to more games and get him more invested and have it be more of a part of his life so that he's really feeling like he's a part of it. Because that's all we really want at the end of the day. It's not actually, I mean, maybe it is that you wanted to be an owner of a baseball team, but it's not really that. It's the, it's that feeling that we want to have. Um, it's one of the reasons why people like to buy like really expensive cars. Um, it's a feeling that they want to have. It's that of when they're in that car. So it might be enough to just rent that car for, you know, a day or a weekend or a couple of times a year to get that feeling, um, that you don't necessarily need to own the Lambo or whatever it is that you want to buy. So, I mean, I, I don't necessarily know like what, what it is about you guys that what's stressing you the F out as you put it, (laughs) but, um, you do need to find that thing that's going to really put a fire in your belly and you need to help each other do it. So the best way to do this with your spouse is to just be as empathetic as possible. So your spouse hates this as much as you do. Great. You know what they feel like, right? You already know what they feel like. And instead of being angry at them for not being able to do it because you can't do it either, maybe empathize with them because you feel the same way and really have a listening ear and then come up with ways that you guys can, what can you do? What can you do to, you know, to not be stressed the F out. Um, what can you do to take control of your finances? Like, what do you need to do to take that first step to sit down with each other? Um, I don't know. You tell me, I mean, there, there are a million ways you can do it. Like maybe you guys actually, you need a night out. You maybe you even, you know, spend money on a babysitter. So you have a night out and you know that that night out where you're sitting at a quiet table somewhere away from your kids, um, maybe by candlelight, where it's really going to be your night to just to like listen to each other empathetically and hear what's on everybody's minds about what kind of life that you want to live and how you're going to finance it and what you can do about it. Um, that's, that's like really all the advice I can give you. Um, and if that's not enough, I highly recommend working with somebody. I really do because what's really great about working with somebody on these things is that they're an objective third party. They're not emotionally invested the way you and your spouse are. They don't have all that stuff that's stressing you the F out going on in their life. They've got other stuff. They got all sorts of other stuff that's stressing them the F out, but they're not going to take that out on you and they're not going to show you that if they're good at what they do. Um, I know I never take any of that into any of my meetings. I try not to. So, you know, like they can be there just as kind of a fly on the wall facilitating your conversations and really helping you communicate about what's super important to you both get that feeling of what like what's what's your wife feeling what are you feeling and is your wife observing what you're feeling so you can kind of get in touch with each other um and really know each other and that way you're on the same team um and you can take the next step that you need to take and you come up with ways to conquer your obstacles because you want to live that best life but without knowing what that is, it's, it's going to be really hard for you to like not be stressed the F out and to actually take any of the steps that you have to do that you, or that you want to do to get where you need to go. So 
I hope that answers your question. And if not, you know, send another one in that, you know, explains your situation a little bit more in depth or give me a call and we can talk about it. Um, that's something I haven't really promoted on the show before, but I do offer 30 minute complimentary sessions. Um, you can go onto moneyowners.com and schedule on the website and you can get a three for 30 minute call with me. Um, if you are a couple, I highly recommend that you're both on the call. That way you can, you know, get the most out of it and you can see what it would be like to work with me. Um, and with that, um, I want to thank everybody for submitting questions. I really appreciate it. We will do another one of these on episode 40, which seems crazy. Cause that's like, that's like a really, that's like 20 weeks away. That's a half a year away. <laughs> <laughs> the rate I put these out. Um, I will have another episode out um, in two weeks. Um, and then it's the holidays and we're moving. So it might be three weeks after that. So forgive me if it is. I'm going to try my best to stay on schedule. And um, I really appreciate you telling a friend, writing a review, um, and you know, retweeting me. <laughs> Other things I wanted to mention, um, I was just on the Bitcoin podcast and that's coming out on Sunday. So I will um, retweet that as well. And you can hear me there. We talk all about um, Bitcoin and asset allocation and asset liability matching and all sorts of fun stuff there as well. It was a super cool conversation. So I highly recommend checking that out too and their podcast. And um, with that, I will see y'all in two weeks. Okay, thanks. Thanks.